0: Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. Today's featured release is The Legacy from C.L. Tolbert. All right, let's jump into chapter one. It is March 19th, 1997. Sally Wilcox wiped her hands on the dishcloth and folded it neatly before placing it on the kitchen counter. It had been a long day at the shop, two funerals down, and they already started preparing for the weekend's wedding. She loved working with flowers, but the job triggered her sciatica. She could hardly stand by the end of the day, She was glad to be home. She hobbled into the TV room and sat down on the couch. The pain in her body immediately eased by the down-filled cushions. She bumped into the table next to the couch and knocked over her favorite picture of her kids, Jeremy and Becky. She placed the frame back on the table and stared at it for several seconds. She missed them so much. The cat curled into a circle on Sally's lap as she propped up her legs on the fluffy ottoman. Comforted by her surroundings, she dozed off almost immediately. Three hours later, she was awakened by the sound of static from her television. Channel 6 had signed off for the night and refrains from the national anthem had just begun. An American flag fluttered across the television screen. It was just past midnight. She moved the cat from her lap, turned off the television and all the downstairs lights and began making her way upstairs toward her bedroom. She stopped when she heard something that sounded like a restrained step. The cat's ears twitched in the direction of the noise. Could someone, a stealthy burglar or worse, be creeping around the house? She almost laughed out loud, amused by her own foolishness. She was such a worrier. Of course, it had to be Charlie the parrot, ruffling his feathers. She couldn't remember if she draped the cloth over his seven-foot-tall cage. Still, she waited and listened, not moving for several seconds. Then she froze as she heard a thump. She glanced out the nearby window and could see trees blowing in the wind. Thinking that a branch must have bumped against the roof, she stood on the stairs for a few more seconds, just to be sure. Hearing nothing and convinced everything was okay, she continued up the stairs. 6 a.m. came early. In her bedroom, she changed into her favorite nightgown, the silk one that felt like butter on her skin. She cleaned her face and flossed and brushed her teeth. No matter how exhausted she was, she always completed her nightly routine. Her mother had insisted on it when she was young and still at home, pointing to an aunt's ravaged face as an example of what could happen if she didn't comply. The practice had become her only indulgence. The cat had already curled up on top of the coverlet when Sally pulled back the sheets. Then she heard another sound. A muffled bump. She grabbed a robe and stepped into the upstairs hallway. The staircase and the light switch were only a few feet from her bedroom door. She found the switch and flipped the toggle up. But nothing happened. What the... she whispered. The cat rubbed against Sally's legs and she jumped. Then she heard another sound and glanced out the window at the end of the hall. The trees were still blowing fiercely. She tiptoed down the first two steps and peered over the banister, unable to see anything in the dark. She continued down the staircase, stopping every few feet to listen. When she was at the second step from the bottom, she stopped. Hello? Is anyone there? Her voice quivered. Yoo-hoo! Charlie was awake now. She still couldn't see anything, but didn't hear any unexpected sounds in the house. She shook her head, embarrassed by her overreaction. The sounds had to be from Charlie, or maybe it was the wind in the trees. But just to be safe, she fled to the kitchen, feeling her way in the dark, and grabbed a knife from the block on the counter. Then she stopped making certain all was well, and turned to retrace her steps back to her bedroom. Seconds later, she felt a sharp punch in her stomach. She swung the knife she clutched in her hand, wildly stabbing into space until she felt resistance. She nicked something. She turned and raised her hand, stabbing blindly, then felt another punch in her stomach and one in her chest, then another, and another. A warm liquid flowed down her legs. Her hand flew to the spot on her chest where she felt a piercing pain. And she realized that blood was pouring from her body. Something had happened. Someone was in front of her. She could sense their presence, hear their breathing. She'd been stabbed. Her robe was wet and blood was beginning to drip onto the floor. She felt dizzy. Her legs were on fire as if a thousand needles had been jabbed into her shins. Then her legs started to shake. She collapsed, falling to the ground on her knees. Then a swift rush of air. She wasn't certain what it was until it was too late. She saw the knife this time, and a dark figure. Charlie squawked. You hoo! The last thing she felt was a crushing pain in her chest. Her heart, already broken, had stopped. That's a good first chapter, isn't it? No. That first chapter's pretty short, so why don't we just keep on going? Here's chapter two. As she was on her way to lunch, assistant professor Emma Thornton dropped by the law clinic's administrative offices at St. Stanislaus Law School to check her mail. She rarely received anything of significance unless it was her monthly direct deposit slip or the law school's weekly calendar, but she checked her mailbox out of habit every day. Today, Emma's cubby had a yellow sticky note placed on top of her name. Call Katherine Green, legal aid. Emma grabbed the note and walked back to her office. Lunch could wait until she spoke to Katherine. It must be important. She never called. Emma had met Katherine Green a few years ago at the continuing legal education class Katherine taught every year. The course was for lawyers who were interested in pro bono work for kids with mental illness or other special needs. Emma had been a special ed teacher before she became an attorney, and she was interested, but she needed a refresher on some of the newer laws. Catherine's voice, when she answered the phone, was lower and more somber than usual, betraying her concern. "'There's a special matter I'd like you to consider taking on,' Catherine said. "'Jeremy Wilcox, one of my clients, has been arrested.' She paused for a moment and sighed. "'For killing his mother.' The officer I spoke to said it was a pretty gruesome scene. I can't represent him because legal aid only handles civil matters. I don't want the judge to randomly assign a public defender to him. He needs a good attorney, but selfishly, I'd like his attorney to be someone I could work with, too. You know, someone I know and trust. Thanks of thinking of me, I'm flattered, Emma paused. So what evidence did the police have on Jeremy? "'Well, there is no weapon at the scene of the crime,' Catherine said, "'but there was a lot of blood and a bloody print from the toe of a tennis shoe. "'The police say the prince matched a pair of Jeremy's Converse All-Stars. "'I had their preliminary homicide report to give you. I can fax it. "'Also, the police found an old tennis ball at the scene. "'Jeremy had developed an unusual attachment to a grubby old tennis ball "'that he's carried with him wherever he goes for, like, a couple of years. "'He never lets it out of his sight.'" "'That could have been planted,' Emma said. "'Yeah, I agree,' Catherine answered. "'But his fingerprints were also at the scene. "'It doesn't look good for him.' "'What about the shoes?' Emma asked. "'Were there blood on Jeremy's shoes?' "'I don't know,' Catherine said. "'If they've done the testing on the shoes yet. "'I haven't seen any of that. Not yet.' "'I'm guessing since you're involved,' Emma said, "'that Jeremy has special needs.' He does, Catherine said. He's 21 now. When he was 17, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He has sporadic hallucinations. He'll carry on conversations with people who aren't there. And just so you know, he can be volatile, especially if he doesn't take his medication. Sometimes he lashes out when he gets upset. His outbursts could be related to his occasional use of opiates. She paused. And he drinks too much sometimes, too. I think the opiate's problem started when he raided his dad's bathroom cabinet. Usually, he's a quiet and mild-mannered young man. Emma jotted down notes as Catherine spoke. I don't think Jeremy would do anything like this, she said. He's not much of a planner. I think the crime was premeditated, and I suspect he's been set up, but I don't have any facts to back that up. Catherine paused. From what I understand... You're great at developing the underlying facts of a case. (laughs) Your flattery is showing, friend, Emma said. But that's okay. I'd love to help if I can. Why do you think the murder was premeditated? The fuse to the downstairs lights was stretched off, Catherine said, before Mrs. Wilcox was attacked. Someone knew where the fuse box was. Or maybe that's not such a hard thing to figure out. "'But I think Jeremy is more reactive or impulsive. "'I can't see him plotting a murder, "'especially his mother's murder.'" Emma said, "'You mentioned something about outbursts. "'How often do they happen?' "'I really don't know,' Catherine said. "'I don't spend long stretches of time with him, "'but usually he seems just fine. "'He's a smart guy, "'so he can carry on an intelligent conversation. "'But then there are days when you notice "'that his face is expressionless.'" He won't laugh at jokes or he might not notice when people walk into the room. Another day, he might giggle at inappropriate times. I was in an elevator once while he carried on a complete conversation with someone. But besides me, he was the only person there, and he wasn't talking to me. Catherine sighed. Also, he wanders. His medical records are full of notes about him absconding from the hospital. Sometimes he'll wander away from his home or he'll sneak out of charity hospital. He's always found by the police or by his dad. A few times he was found uptown, that's miles away from his home on the West Bank. And that means he's crossed a bridge, on foot. Probably the Huey P. Long, so he's lucky to be alive. He's never threatened me, she continued, but I understand from others that a few people at Charity Hospital, patients and staff, have felt intimidated by him. Does this happen often? Emma asked. I couldn't tell you, Catherine said. I think the episodes come on gradually, so you don't really realize it at first, but I'd feel better if you'd talk to his doctor about that. I'd say he had a couple, maybe more episodes a year, but I really don't know. I've had clients with schizophrenia before, and some of them were rigid planners, you know, planning every moment of their routine. I think that might help them cope or maintain their schedule of meds, but not Jeremy, at least not from what I've seen. I've never heard him talk about his future. I don't think he makes plans with others. But again, I, I don't see him that often. I do have a suggestion, she said, when you're working with him. If Jeremy, if I suspect Jeremy is sliding into another episode, I try to ground him. It was something suggested to me by one of his uh, ED teachers. Emma paused. What do you mean by grounding? "'You just remind him where he is,' she said. "'Try to reorient him. "'If he seems to drift away "'or if he won't make eye contact, "'say something like, "'Jeremy, it's Friday, March, blah, blah, blah. "'Whatever, you know, give him the date. "'Tell him where he is, like, "'You're at Orleans Parish Central Lockup, "'and then tell him what you want him to do. "'I'm your attorney. "'I want to talk to you.'" Emma nodded as she wrote, "'That's great information, thanks. "'But even though you say Jeremy isn't a planner,' He was arrested for murder, and that was planned, premeditated. And when that's premeditation, it's hard to prove that a killer didn't know the difference between right and wrong at the time of the killing, which is the core of the insanity defense. Emma paused. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. I haven't even met Jeremy. True, Catherine said, but what you're saying is right, especially if the murderer made an effort to cover his tracks. Also, the bloody shoe print was the tip of a, only one shoe, so it looks like the killer was trying to avoid the pools of blood. I'm not sure what I think about it, since there's so many unanswered questions, Emma said, but I'd be willing to meet with Jeremy. Does he have a guardian? Yes, Catherine said his father. Okay, then. I'll need to get his okay before I could represent him, Emma said. Catherine agreed. I can arrange a meeting with you two. Emma pursed her lips. I can't imagine how awful the dad must be feeling. His wife dead? His son charged with murder? Catherine cleared her throat. I'm not so sure about that. Mrs. Wilcox lived by herself. She left the home years ago. Catherine's eyes widened. Why did she leave? I've never known, Catherine said. How did you get involved with them then, i asked. I'm Jeremy's educational advocate, Catherine said. I've been involved with him and his family since he was about nine. His mother finally gave up and pulled him out of school when he was 10 to homeschool him. He went back to school after she left, and it's been a struggle to find appropriate placement for him. The school system never met his needs until this recent placement with the emotional disorder, the ED classroom. And then this happened. He was still in school, Emma asked. Yes, until his arrest, Catherine said. Since he has a disability, he can stay in school through his 21st year. So, Emma said he was doing better in the smaller classroom. I think he was okay, Catherine said, but he was better off when he was homeschooled. Mrs. Wilcox pulled him out of school because she lost faith in the system. But homeschooling takes dedication, especially if you got a problem kid. Emma thought, what would make a mother who was so involved in her child's life walk away from that child and the entire family? Catherine inhaled sharply. (coughs) We can talk more candidly about this if Jeremy's dad okays your representation. But I can tell you that Jeremy's record reflects that there was a lot of tension between the doctors and Mrs. Wilcox. She didn't think Jeremy needed some of the medication the doctors prescribed, and Jeremy fought taking it. Mr. Wilcox didn't seem to have an opinion about Jeremy's care one way or the other. Emma could hear pages rustling. I suspect he didn't understand what was going on with Jeremy. I know Mrs. Wilcox tried to establish some rules and boundaries, but the dad didn't believe that they were necessary. And now the dad has all the responsibility, Emma said. That's right, Catherine said back. "'Did I tell you there's a sister?' "'I don't know anything about her,' Catherine made a tisk tisk sound. "'After Mrs. Wilcox left, "'Jeremy continued to have flares of aggressive behavior and temper tantrums. "'I'm not sure what triggered them. "'Occasionally, he and his father would even get into fights.' "'Fights?' Emma asked. "'Yes,' Catherine said. "'And every time that happened, Mr. Wilcox would have Jeremy hospitalized.' When you say hospital, Emma said, are, are you referring to charity? Yes, Catherine confirmed. After he was 17, his dad would call 911 and have the ambulance drop him off at the psych ward at Charity on the third floor. Poor guy, Emma said. Yeah, Catherine agreed. Before she left, Mrs. Wilcox had always handled everything all the medical and mental health appointments, everything. I'm guessing it's all been too much for Mr. Wilcox. Emma asked, do you know if Jeremy had a special tutor when he was homeschooled? In addition to his mom, Catherine asked, I don't know. I do know he's very good at math and he loves to draw. His mom knew drawing calmed the down, so she got him into drawing his feelings. She worked really hard with him. Mrs. Wilcox always believed in Jeremy and his intelligence and thought she could do a better job with him than his teachers did. It's sad that she left them. "'Okay,' Emma said. "'I'll meet with the dad and see if he'll give me his permission to represent Jeremy.' "'I'd really appreciate that, Emma. "'And I'd like to meet with Jeremy, too,' she said. "'Sure,' Catherine said, "'but don't expect much when you meet him. "'He isn't always responsive, especially after sudden changes. "'He's been doing a little better lately, "'but now I expect he'll be confused and withdrawn, "'especially since he's confined.' "'I have one more question,' Emma said.' You said Jeremy occasionally wandered as far as the uptown area. That's got to be at least 10 miles from the West Bank, maybe more. Where did his mother live? Catherine said she lived on Arabella Street. And that's uptown, Emma said. Do you think Jeremy was trying to visit or find his mother's house when he walked there? I have no idea, Catherine said, but it's certainly a possibility. All right, that is the second chapter from The Legacy. So The Legacy was released from Level Best Books and is being promoted by Partners in Crime. Let's learn a little bit about today's author, C.L. Tolbert. Licensed in Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi, Cynthia Tolbert retired after 35 years of practicing law and began writing full-time. After winning the Georgia State Bar Fiction Writing Contest, she developed the winning short story into the first novel in the Thornton Mystery Series. Out from Silence, published in 2019. Cynthia taught at Loyola Law School for several years where she directed a homeless clinic and worked with third year law students in actual cases. All of these experiences have informed her fiction. She is an avid reader, a mother of two, and a grandmother to three beautiful girls. She now lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and schnauzer named Yoda. Okay, so here's my review. The Legacy is a mystery legal thriller. Professor Emma Thompson's newest case is complicated. Jeremy Wilcox is accused of killing his mother, stabbing her to death. Diagnosed as schizophrenic, Jeremy is off his meds in jail, making communication difficult. He has a history of self-medicating with painkillers and escaping from the local hospital's mental health ward. The family dynamic is dysfunctional, support is non-existent, and answers to even basic questions are not forthcoming. Bottom line, the legacy is for you if you like legal thrillers, where it takes more than evidence to get to the truth. So strengths of the story. This is the fourth story in the Emma Thornton series. The cast of characters are mature and comfortable in their skin. Tilbert's detailed and loving description of New Orleans is a treat. I've only been a visitor to the city a handful of times, but feels like she transports me onto the streets and into the culture. Tolbert also does a very nice job of giving us a meaningful story without crossing the line into a lesson-driven story. Uh, she explores the idea and consequences of heredity, in the Wilcox storyline it's the genetic, not generic, genetic heredity of schizophrenia and the impact it has on the leading New Orleans family. This is paralleled with Emma having to face other legacies that hit closer to home. As her 14-year-old twins start experimenting and rebelling, Emma has to confront their father's legacy of alcoholism, and at the same time, she realizes that she's passed on traits, ones that drive her to excel in one area, even at the cost to others. It's an excellent study in the concept of legacy and is very well done. The Legacy is listed on Amazon as a mystery and traditional detective, and those are reasonable genre descriptions. Certainly, they do not reflect the degree to which the legal case is front and center. Also, as Emma is a law professor, this is an amateur sleuth, not a PI or cop detective. There are thriller elements in the resolution, which leads me to the opinion that a legal thriller or legal mystery, and yes, I just made up a genre there, uh, may be a more accurate impression of the story. This is the fourth book, but readers can jump right in. Uh, there's a continuing growth arc with Emma, her new husband, Ren, and Emma's two boys. But Tolbert does a nice job of giving us what we need to know to get to know them without leaving us feeling left out. Of course, if you are a reader who cannot not start at book one, by all means, pick up Out of Silence to start at the beginning. So where did the story fall short? There isn't a lot to pick on here. Looking from the end back to the beginning, as you all know I like to do, the story holds up. This mystery is made up of different layers where looking at the whole implies a very different story than you see when you take the layers apart. Emma is true to her nature, even when it's gonna cause her problems. And the issues related to mental health, well, those are harder for me to develop an opinion of, it's not my field of expertise. So I, I really can't say whether those are reasonable, uh, especially because mental health itself symptoms of it is that it's not reasonable. Uh, At the end of the book, Tolbert cites that the story was formed and informed by her experience working pro bono cases. So I trust that her representation of mental health issues, while they may not be every patient's experience, does represent actual experiences of her and her clients. Um, I appreciated that she represented all the characters with dignity and individuality. So that is The Legacy. Again, if you love legal thrillers, and this one is a a very cool mystery, too, um, pick it up. If you know family and friends who love this type of storytelling, please do share it. Partners in Crime Tours promoted The Legacy, uh, which represents a network of 300-plus bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, mystery, and thriller writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, PICT offers virtual book tours for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those of us just starting out. PICT prides itself on tailored packages for authors, with a personal touch from tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. Link is in the show notes. Join us next week for a special holiday episode of Mysteries to Die For, Season 6, Things That Go Jack in the Night. This is episode 13, Who Nipped Jack Frost, by me, T.G. Wolf. This one is not in the anthology. It is a podcast-only mystery. So join us back here to find out what exactly happened to the last Jack of the season, Jack Frost. With that, I'll turn to my Jack. Take us out.